0: Jamie, for those of you that don't know me, Jamie Norman, and I'll be with you here <laughs> shortly. So uh, if, you, if you don't know me, you're probably going to get to know me. Um, and we're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to what the Lord will do for the glory of his name. But I want us to uh, go in our Bibles or... Are you all st- still reading this on the... Uh-oh. Are we all right? Are y'all still doing this on the uh, screen, reading it together? All right, let's do that then. And I, Matthew one twenty three, and we'll we'll read that. We may not have that, and that's fine. I'll read it. Is that what I need to do? Uh, Matthew one twenty three. Should we read it together, or should I just? Uh, all right. We'll do that. So I'll read it to you. It's a short, quick and painless. All right. So Matthew 123 The word of the Lord says, "Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us." God help us we need you. Open my mouth to speak and the ears of your people to hear your word. May you receive glory for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want you to imagine, if you will, uh, that you have never read the Bible. And for some of you that might be easier to uh, imagine than you care to admit. But Imagine you've never read the Bible and someone told you that a good place to start would be the New Testament. And I think that's probably good advice. And starting in the New Testament, in the very first chapter, you would come to this text that talks about a baby who would be called Emmanuel. That means God with us. You would read writers talking about Jesus tabernacling with humans. And even see Jesus refer to himself as the temple. Not just a temple, but the temple. You would read things about Jesus being the cornerstone of a, a new temple. Or a new building. And I'm going to guess that in that particular mindset that it would be quite confusing because you would have no, no context for those concepts, uh, God with us, or a tabernacle, or a temple, or, or a new temple. And, and the reason that that is is because those themes and other themes like them, there are numerous ones like that, are actually progressively revealed throughout all of Scripture And then they culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in this sermon, I want to preach the whole Bible. (laughs) I want to walk through um, all of Scripture, and actually I'm going to race through and skip a whole lot. So just have in your mind that what I should be saying is, um, a hundred years later, and Skipping all of the significant parts in between that, and then I'll get to my next point. So, we're just going to race through it, skip through it, but I want to give you a biblical context of the significant and the significance of the fact that Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, where do we begin? Well, we begin in the beginning. God created. The heavens and the earth. And and we get a striking picture of the grandeur of that account immediately in Scripture. And then we see God crowning the act of creation with the creation of man and woman in his own image. And when he does so, we need to note closely the command that God gives this first man and woman in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28, and God blessed them, the man and the woman, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the command is for man and woman to multiply and ultimately to subdue the earth. We also see in that Genesis account that God makes a garden in the midst of the earth and he gives man and woman the charge to keep the garden in the midst of the earth. And this garden was as we know, most of us know was an Eden. It was a fruitful paradise. And then taking some implications And I have to admit that they are only implications from Genesis 3.8. And that's the uh, scripture that, uh, that talks about God coming to man after the fall. And then take into account the garden imagery that's later on used in the tabernacle and the temple. We get the sense that this garden was a divine sanctuary. It's the place where God dwelt. It's the place where God and man dwelled together harmoniously and did so for an undisclosed amount of time. Also considering Genesis 1.28 that God says be fruitful and multiply and subdue the whole earth. I think we get the sense that God intended Adam and Eve to expand this divine Edenic sanctuary throughout all of God's creation as they multiplied and subdued the earth. But it doesn't take us long to realize that our first parents failed in so doing. They failed to complete the mission. They were deceived by the serpent, and they willfully and blatantly disobeyed or rebelled against their Creator in all that He commanded them to do. And we know what happens next. Man was cast out of Eden and symbolic of being driven away from the presence of God. And now whatever way that God and humans dwelled together in Eden was no longer the way man related to God due to his own sin. Humankind was driven away from this divine sanctuary and then God places cherubim with flaming swords in the at the east entrance of this Eden, to deny entrance to that garden, this place where God and man dwelled together. But in this account, we also see that God didn't scrap the whole program. After the fall, actually, and He certainly could have, would have been justified in destroying all that there was and forgotten about it entirely. But after the fall, God appears to the first humans and He graciously allows them to live even far longer than we live today. And not only that, He even gives them a promise of one that would come after a while and would crush the head of that cursed serpent. Even though the serpent would bruise the heel of the one that would crush his head. After this, we see human history descend into chaos and rebellion, resulting in a worldwide flood and also resulting in a confusion of languages that would force human dispersion. And for hundreds of years, we see God interacting with only a few men like Noah or Abraham or Jacob or Moses. And, and even in these Even in these men that God visited, we see sin, struggle, enmity, and even blatant disobedience toward God, don't we? But at the same time, even with these sinful and rebellious men, we see God making covenants with these men. And these covenants reveal that God is still working to establish a dwelling place with a particular people. We we understand that. So skipping hundreds of years and all of the significant stuff in between, a major development in the restoration of God's dwelling place with man is seen in the construction of the tabernacle. This was just a tent, a tent of meeting it is referred to as. And by this time... God has delivered His chosen people from bondage to the Egyptians, and He does so under the leadership of Moses. Once these people are free from slavery, and once they are on their way to the promised land or to Canaan, God gives Moses instructions to oversee the construction of a tent-like structure that would really serve as a mobile place of worship. And, and something interesting about the tabernacle, and we'll see this in the, in the temple as well, is, is the imagery in the tabernacle that would link it with the divine sanctuary that we see in the Garden of Eden. For instance, the tabernacle, like the garden, was entered from the east. And a cherubim guarded the innermost sanctum or the Holy of Holies. The veil was decorated with cherubim. In addition, gold and onyx that were mentioned in Genesis 2 are used prominently to decorate the tabernacle and to decorate the priestly garments. Even look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. The same Hebrew words used to instruct Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden are used only in passages that describe the duties of the Levites serving in the sanctuary. In Numbers 3, 7 through 8, they are told the Levites are told to keep and to guard the tabernacle. Same words, to work and keep, or to keep and guard. So there's an immediate link between what Adam and Eve were commanded to do with the Garden of Eden, and what the priests were commanded to do with this tent of meeting or this tabernacle. When the tabernacle was first raised, Exodus 40, 34-35, through 35, give the account of what happens next. And I want to read that to you. Exodus 40. Verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this, this cloud of God's glory that is described in Exodus that fills the tabernacle once it is raised or erected, is intimately associated with the presence of God among His people. So much so, that they didn't move when the cloud remained. And they certainly moved when the cloud lifted. That's recounted in, I won't read it for sake of time, but in Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 17 and 22. It it tells us that the cloud was there, and as long as the cloud was there, they remained. But when the cloud lifted, regardless if it was a couple of days or a couple of months, they certainly moved because they wanted to move with the Lord. It was understood as God's dwelling place. They did not want to be without the presence of God. And so they stayed when the cloud was there. And they moved when the cloud lifted and moved elsewhere. The tabernacle is also understood as God's... uh, God's dwelling place, because it was the place where God often met with Moses. And that's, that's the reference to the tent of meeting. And so when Moses was going out to meet God, he met God in this tent. This was the dwelling place of God. Once the people of God settled in Canaan, the tabernacle continued to be understood as the dwelling place of God it was always in the minds of the people of god even when it's moved from Shiloh to jerusalem with the beginning of the davidic dynasty that would actually even mark the beginning of another significant development in the saga of god's dwelling with a man and that is in the building of the temple david lived in an ornate palace And he desired to build God a palace or a house because of the fact that his ornate and beautiful palace outstripped the plain Jane tabernacle that was understood as God's dwelling place. But David wasn't allowed to construct a palace for God. That project was left to Solomon. And he constructed this magnificent structure... And again, in the construction of this magnificent structure, there is similar uh, Edenic imagery, just like there was in the tabernacle, although more ornate. There were lilies at the tops of the columns and pomegranates decorating the, the, the pillars. In the temple, and I've never been, but I've seen depictions of it, you know, Uh, There was an arboreal or a garden-like appeal to this magnificent temple. And it has to be that God intended for there to be a link between that temple and the tabernacle all the way back to that divine sanctuary in the Garden of Eden. We even see the theme of gold continues with the temple and even increases the... uh, the nation of Israel was very wealthy under the rule of David and then, and then Solomon. And so there was gold, uh, uh, there was a wealth of gold at their fingertips. And so there was a lot of gold and it even increases. The more you, or the closer you moved into those holy places or the innermost holy places, the side or the amount of gold increased. And even as you, Entered into the Holy of Holies, there was more gold. Because this was the place where God encounters, or rather man encounters God. In his temple, in his palace, in his house. But there's something that's even, I think, uh, it's at least equal in significance, if not greater in significance... And that is the fact that this temple being built in Jerusalem raises Jerusalem's status to the city of God, or Zion, or the holy city. And And I hope you see the progression here, because now not only is this temple understood as the dwelling place of God, now Zion, or Jerusalem, is understood as God's dwelling place. There are numerous passages of Scripture that refer to Jerusalem as the city of God or God's dwelling place. I chose one of them, Psalm 132.13, just succinctly gives us that understanding. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it. For his dwelling place. So I want us to see that the temple being the dwelling place of God. Has made the entire city of Jerusalem a holy city. And there there is an outward expansion of God's dwelling place seen here. And that outward expansion of God's dwelling place. Is linked with the Davidic dynasty. The one whose seed uh, would bring about this anticipated king but that's probably another theme for another time but just see the progression at this point we have seen the dwelling place of God move from a handful of theophanies with just a few men to a mobile tent to a permanent temple to a city a temple city a city with God's temple at its center But the story is really the same again. The citizens of Jerusalem, even the priests of this temple, failed to live up to their status as citizens of the holy city. They failed to live up to their status as citizens of the holy city, much less the status of the type of citizen that would be required to expand this holy temple city throughout the whole world. As a matter of fact, the citizens of Jerusalem, even the priests of the temple, proved to be no more holy than the inhabitants of any other city. Even the pagan cities. This tragedy was not lost on the faithful because many Old Testament prophets mourned this reality. Again, I chose just one example in Isaiah chapter 1. 1. I'll read just a few scriptures here in the first chapter of Isaiah to give you this idea of the faithful of God mourning the reality of the sinfulness of the inhabitants of the holy city, indeed the priests. Isaiah 1, 4. "'Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel.'" They are utterly estranged. Verse 8, And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So this holy temple city is now nothing more than just a shanty that people use to shade themselves from the sun when they're in the fields picking cucumbers. Verse 10 and 11, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And then finally in verse 21, strong language here is used. How the faithful city has become a whore. She, is full of inju- or full of just- she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. We even see the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem being so corrupt that even their leaders were compared to the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is that wicked city that was overthrown by God because of their wickedness. This is the biblical antithesis to a holy city. But God is saying the inhabitants, even the rulers of Jerusalem, are to be compared with the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah, that wicked city. And the result of this tragic truth was ultimate destruction of that first magnificent temple. And the people of Israel and Jerusalem were sent away into Babylonian and Assyrian exile They were cast out of this special place of God's presence into the pagan lands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. And I think that you can hear the echo. This is obviously reminiscent of Adam and Eve being driven out of the Edenic garden into a place of exile and toll. But just as God is merciful and gracious... With our original parents, so He is merciful and gracious to them. Even in the midst of this sin and ruin, there is an anticipation of a day when Jerusalem would be finally what God intended it to be. Actually, we only need to look over to the very next chapter in Isaiah to see, to get a picture of that. Verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 2 the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, Saul concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It came to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So, here is an idyllic Jerusalem, where there is the law of the Lord is proceeding forth. The inhabitants are holy, and there is peace over all of the earth. It looks beyond what Jordan, uh, I'm sorry, Jerusalem uh, was. It even looks beyond what Jerusalem would be, and really looks beyond Isaiah. Two looks beyond what Jerusalem will ever be in this age. And just as God didn't forsake His purposes, as I mentioned a moment ago, with our first parents, He did not forsake His purposes with the Israelites, because after a period of judgment in Babylon, the second temple is constructed, and Jerusalem is rebuilt around it, and it's understood as the temple of God, the dwelling place of God again. And Jerusalem is understood as the holy city again. But we know that the second temple is obviously not what the first temple was in beauty and grandeur. But it was promised in Haggai and Zechariah that its glory would exceed the glory of the first temple. So skipping hundreds of years... And all the significant stuff in between. One of the ways the glory of the second temple exceeded the glory of the first temple was the fact that the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, physically came to and even taught in the second temple. Remember that uh, Luke chapter two. We'll probably read it uh, to our families uh, around this season of time. There is rejoicing in in the temple. And it's because Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, actually comes into this second temple. It was a greatly remodeled version of it, but still the second temple. But that's not really the only way, and I don't think even the most significant way that Christ uh, fulfills the exceeding glory of the second temple. The more significant way... Or, a more significant way, I should say, is the fact that, that Christ is actually the temple of God. You remember John 1:14, the Bible says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's, that word dwelt is, is tabernacled among us. It gives us the language that Christ was God tabernacling with man, that He was the tent. Not only that he pitched his tent with man, but that he was the tent. He was the meeting place of God and man. And of course, he was truly God and truly man. And so in that sense, the meeting place of God and man. But because of that, this is where man met God. As they interacted with Jesus, men were meeting God himself in the flesh. but John 2:19 through 22 John sh- records the words of Jesus Let me read that to you Jesus answered them destroy this temple and in 3 days I will raise it up The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple And will you raise it up in three days? But this is something I love about John. He always gives us a good explanation. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So Jesus is God tabernacling with man, and now he is the very temple. It makes This passage makes plain the link between Jesus and the temple, and it also makes plain that the disciples understood that when he was raised from the dead, then they were like, oh, now we get it. But even more prominent than the immediate link between Jesus and the temple, more prominent in the... New Testament is the idea that he is the cornerstone of a new building the foundation upon which a new temple will be constructed Matthew chapter 21 verses 42 through 43 communicate what is recorded in Luke 12 I'm sorry Mark 12 Luke 20 and even in Acts 4 Matthew 21 42 through 43 Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple. This idea that Jesus is the temple and the cornerstone of the temple what this does is it establishes a link between His body as the temple and those who are in Christ as the new temple whose foundation is Christ. The temple that Jesus is and the temple that Jesus uh, that is built upon Him is the church. Jesus is the temple and the cornerstone of the church. And the church is now... The church is now the dwelling place of God. Paul understands this, and he communicates that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I can't get to everything, but this link is also found in... Uh, both of the canonical letters to the Corinthians and in the first epistle of of Peter Luke also seems to highlight a phasing out of the old temple in Luke and Acts and then establishing a new temple which is the church and there is also a significant shift from the way God dwells with from the way I want to emphasize that the way God dwells with man in the Old Testament We have seen that the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament has been among or with God's people. He was with Abraham and Moses. He was among His people during the expansion of the kingdom. And then after their return from exile, it it was understood that God was among His people again. But in John chapter 14, Jesus, Jesus says that Speaking of the Spirit, he says that another comforter will come to you. Speaking of that, or linking rather himself as the comforter with the other comforter, the Holy Spirit. But then he says, he has been with you, but he shall be in you. And there's the shift. That's the difference in the way God dwells with his people in the Old Testament And with His people in the New Testament. Up to this point, God dwelt with His people. But the promise now is that God will dwell within His people. J.L. Hamilton Hamilton helpfully says, Indwelling does exist in the Old Covenant. But it is not each individual in the Old Covenant that is indwelt. In the Old Covenant, God indwelt the temple In the new covenant, the people of God are the temple, and God dwells in them. And this makes Pentecost make sense, doesn't it? When the Spirit is poured out on the church, God's people are indwelt by the Spirit, and they go forth, as recorded in the book of Acts, which is really just the beginning And they are expanding the dwelling place of God throughout all of the earth. In Jerusalem and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Just as as Adam was commanded to do in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Go everywhere. So God's dwelling place is no longer isolated to a particular building in a particular city. Rather, the temple of God is the people of God wherever they are found. Christ is in them, and they are in Christ, and both by the Holy Spirit. And they are doing exactly what Christ commanded them to do, right? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All power in heaven and earth has been given to me, Therefore, go to all the nations, baptizing them in my name, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. All power was given to Christ. It was not given to us, but we go in Him. We are in Him by the Spirit, and we preach to every creature. That's what Christ has commanded us to do. And we're expanding God's dwelling place, not just to Jerusalem, not just to a particular nation of people, but to the ends of the earth. And Christ gives this promise, I am with you to the end of the age. And so I hope you can hear that echo from Genesis 1.28. Those in whom God dwells should go forth and subdue the earth. They should expand the dwelling place of God. And we don't do this with sword. We don't do this with policy. But we do it by the power of the gospel. But just as the the idyllic Jerusalem spoke of by the Old Testament prophets was not realized, so we also fall short of realizing God's full intention, don't we? For His dwelling place, the new Jerusalem. We are the temple. We are this dwelling place of God. But we fall short. And the reason is the same. It's sin. Right? Don't, don't we as, as the church often draw back from sharing the gospel? It's the very thing that we have been commanded to do. And yet we, we draw back, even in those times when we have an obvious and clear opportunity, Right? We've been praying, Lord, please open the door for me to share the gospel with so-and-so. And And then the door is open, and what do we do? We draw back. And it is what God has commanded us to do. It is the way that we are fruitful. It is the way that we expand the dwelling place of God. We mar the testimony of the church when we engage in questionable activities before our peers. Those circle conversations at work that get a little... Um, you know how they get. And instead of walking away, we stand there to try to be a part of the crowd and mar the testimony of the church. We get distracted from worship and devotion because we become idolatrous and covetous. We, We fail to worship God purely and completely just like the Old Testament priests. Just like the people of God. We become fearful of man and we fail to act on that very thing that fulfills our part of the great commission. Try as we might and work towards it we must. We cannot bring the consummation about. But that doesn't stop it. And let's look at that final and full consummation of God's dwelling place being described in Revelation 21, and you know what that means. We're almost at the end. And God's people said, Amen. 21, verses 1 through 3, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. So these verses and following describe a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And significantly, it's coming down from God. It doesn't come up from the earth. And the description of this new Jerusalem echoes the description of the Old Testament temple with its ornate decorations, its rare jewels, its precious metals, especially gold. Of significance also is the fact that these dimensions reveal the dimensions of the city, reveal a perfect cube. And it communicates that the whole city will be the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. Verse 22 of of Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Note there is no temple, for Christ Himself is the temple. Further, all the inhabitants of this holy city are in Christ, And because of that, there's nothing profane or unholy that will ever corrupt that city. As Revelation 21, 27 said, Finally and fully, the whole earth will again be the divine sanctuary. The whole earth is the dwelling place of God. Because the last Adam, Jesus Christ, has achieved by obedience what the first Adam failed to achieve in His disobedience. And because of where we are on the calendar, I want to draw our attention. It was my intention today to draw our attention to the climatic center of all of this. The incarnation. Just as the imaginary person in our introduction would be confused about the identity of Jesus if they didn't know the biblical context of the dwelling place of God... So, none of this would make sense. Actually, none of this would even be possible were it not for our text. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the centerpiece of this meta narrative. He is the author and finisher of it all. And here he is, lying in a manger, swaddled up in cloths, born to commoners like Joseph and Mary. And this this has always amazed me, especially this time of year, of course, that He is Emmanuel, God with us. Angels are announcing His birth and shepherds are coming to worship Him. Later on, wise men from far off lands will come and bring expensive gifts to Him. Kings are going to seek to kill Him. God has made flesh and has tabernacled among us. This is mysterious. This is is marvelous. He is the temple that was destroyed on the cross, but then rebuilt on the third day when He was raised from the dead. And He has raised us up with Him. And we who are in Christ, we are the temple of God on the earth. We are filled with His Spirit, and we are empowered to expand His dwelling place throughout all the earth. He is not only with us, but He is within us. And He will return. And all of the earth will be His dwelling place. It will be a new Jerusalem perfected forever by His finished work. As I've said before, He has accomplished what the first Adam did not accomplish. And He has expanded the dwelling place of God throughout all the earth. What child is this we ask at this time of the year? He is Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to close with this. I want to say to the unbeliever that I have given you a snapshot of the biblical narrative of what the Bible is about. We see man falling in the garden and the sin... And chaos that is handed down from generation to generation. We feel its effects and we engage in that very rebellion that has brought about this chaos. But God didn't stop. He sent His holy Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. To be raised from the dead. Proving that He was who He said He was. He accomplished this new Jerusalem. And so what I am asking the unbeliever is, will you believe? Believe this word. Believe this story. Cease your disobedience and rebellion and cast yourself on Christ. Become a part of this new temple, this dwelling place of God that will culminate in the eternal New Jerusalem where God and man dwell together forever. Place your trust in Him. Join us in this work. Because to reject this offer not only forfeits living with God forever and ever, but it means eternal separation from Him in torments. I ask you, as a matter of fact, plead with you. You don't need to move to a particular part of the building. You don't need to say particular words right where you are Believe the gospel and obey Jesus. And finally, to the, unbelie- or to the believers here today, let's don't lose the profound and amazing truths of the incarnation in the busyness of this season, right? We say it all the time. We say we'll do better next year. And then we do the same stuff. Let's remember the amazing and mysterious truth of the Incarnation. When we gather together, when we feast, when we sing carols, and we do all of the things that God has ordained for us to do, they're fun and good and there's nothing wrong with them. Let's keep at the center the whole reason we're doing this. It is Emmanuel, God with us. And also let's get about the work that God has called us to do. We are called, even though we cannot consummate it, we are called to expand the kingdom throughout all the earth. We do that in our spheres of influence. And we do that by sending missionaries. We do that by taking trips. We do it in a manner, a a numerous amount of ways. But let's get to it. Let's stop making excuses. And let's be reminded that he who has called us said he would go with us even as we expand His dwelling place on earth. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. Thank you, God, for not casting us aside. But you chasten us, but then you come to us. And one day, Lord, we look forward to the time when you will be with us without the hindrance of sin. Forever and ever. May the anticipation of that day. Sanctify our hearts. And move us to to obedience. As we expand your dwelling place. To every corner of the earth. We can't do it without you and your spirit. So we ask for that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.